If you were part of the evangelical church back in the 1990s, you were probably familiar with the acronym WWJD. What would Jesus do? The fad was actually inspired by a much older book, a book by the title In His Steps. That book was written back in 1896, and it was written to encourage believers to follow in the steps of Jesus in everyday practical ways, or in our modern language, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do when faced with this particular circumstance of life? One of the challenges or one of the critiques of that movement, of that acronym, that fad, what would Jesus do, is that the emphasis isn't on Jesus the Redeemer, the emphasis was on Jesus the Lawgiver, Jesus the Guide for Life. And although it's understandable and admirable to want to do what Jesus would have us do, there is a danger that we might forget that Jesus is a singular person in history. We can't do many of the things that Jesus did because he is the faithful servant of God who by his doing actually secures salvation for you and me. And so even though Jesus does call on his followers to follow him, and sometimes that means hauling a cross with us, we shouldn't look to Jesus as if he is merely a new lawgiver, a second Moses. The people who heard this letter the very first time are in danger of replacing Jesus with Moses. You remember that when we started this series that I told you that most scholars believe that what's driving this letter, this book, maybe it's a sermon, what's driving it is the author's concern that the original audience is in danger of turning away from their profession of faith in Jesus back to a Judaism that they left behind. They're in danger of giving up on Jesus. And so our author calls Moses to the witness stand. Moses is the key figure in the Old Testament outside of Abraham, who we'll hear about in future weeks. And as he brings Moses to the witness stand, our author compares and contrasts the ministries of Moses and Jesus. And there are three key words in this chapter that I want us to use as we make our way through the chapter to help understand the point that our author is making. Those three words are house, hope, and heart. House, hope, and heart. The first thing that our author wants to show us is that Jesus is better than Moses in the house of God. Look at how the writer describes Jesus in verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who shared a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. This is the only place in the Bible that Jesus is ever called an apostle. Now, it's not a denigration of his status. It's actually an explanation of his mission. He was sent... That's what apostle means, someone who is sent. 
He was sent by God to the world. Jesus is sent by the Father to be his voice, to be his representative to the world. The author goes on and he says he is an apostle and he is a high priest. So in addition to representing God to us as an apostle, Jesus also turns and represents you and me to God as our high priest. Now, the original audience would have had a very quick understanding of that because even if they had never been to Jerusalem, they would have heard the stories about the priests in the temple of Jerusalem who every day made sacrifices to God on the great altar. Well, that's not what Jesus does, of course. He doesn't make daily sacrifices in Jerusalem's temple. Instead, it's his once-for-all sacrifice on the cross that puts away sin forever. What's interesting is that by combining these two offices, apostle and high priest, our author is actually setting Jesus up against Moses. He's comparing Jesus to Moses. Moses is also an apostle. He's never called that in the Old Testament, but he is sent by God to witness of God to Israel in captivity and also to Pharaoh. This was the heart of Moses' concern, you remember, in Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush. God is going to send him to Pharaoh and to the people of Israel. And Moses questions God, who shall I say has sent me? What does God answer in return? He says, you tell them that I am has sent you. Moses is an apostle. And even though Moses doesn't himself sacrifice to God in the tabernacle that Israel builds on their journey through the wilderness, that job belongs to his brother Aaron, Moses acts as a kind of intercessor, weighing Israel's needs and bringing them before God, interceding for them when they sin and appealing to God on their behalf. And part of what the author is doing is saying, listen, I get it. I get why you are interested in perhaps going back to what you once knew, what was familiar to you, maybe even what is safer to you since the Jews were given a certain sense of freedom and latitude in the Roman Empire. But consider Jesus. Measure him against Moses and see how he is greater. He goes on in verse 2 to talk about the faithfulness of Moses in the house of God. He says, yes, Moses is faithful, but Jesus is also faithful. And he also wants them to see that there's a difference in their status. Look at verse 2. He was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also is faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Skip down to verse 5. Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. The difference between a servant and a son. Like many of you, Sarah and I 
few years ago, watched the uh, PBS miniseries, Downton Abbey. And do you remember the character Tom, the one who was the chauffeur who fell in love with Lady Sybil and they got married? What happened? His status was dramatically changed, right? He went from being a servant in the house to being a member of the family, sitting there at the table with the rest of the family. That's a dumb way to illustrate what our author is trying to get across to us. There is a drastic difference between being a servant and a son. Jesus possesses a glory and honor that is greater than any other being. And he's call, he calls the people of God to faith. He offers himself as a propitiation for the sins of God's people. He himself is the sanctifier of God's people. He does things for God's people that Moses could never do. Even as Moses would intercede for God's people, it was Jesus himself who made propitiation, who was the sanctifier, the one who accomplished what Moses could only point to. Why is our author so focused on this? Why is he driving this comparison between Moses and Jesus? Because getting this wrong will rob you of your hope. That's the second word I want us to look at. Getting this wrong will rob you of your hope. Go back to verse 6. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. If the original audience, if these readers, if they turn back to Judaism, if they turn away from Jesus, there won't be any ground for their hope. Friends, don't be scared of these conditional sentences. We see it here in verse 6. We also see it in verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Don't ignore, don't skip over that little two-letter word, if. Your hope, your confidence, is only as secure as the person in whom you are hoping. If the original readers turn from Jesus and put their confidence back in a religious system that they left behind, then their hope is no longer secure. They can't be assured that they will continue on. The question that we have for us is, are we hoping in something other than Jesus? Are we thinking about other saviors? You see, the original audience, this ancient church, is in danger of putting their hope, their confidence, out away from Jesus to Moses. And I don't think that's our danger here this morning. I've not talked with any of you who are interested in converting to Judaism. If you are, please come and talk to me, okay? <laughs> but we are in danger, aren't we? Of looking to other things, of trusting in other things, 
We're in danger, many of us, of trusting in our families or even our longing for a family. If only God would give me the person of my dreams. If only my marriage is strong. If only my kids turn out okay. Then I know that God can be trusted. Then I know that I will be okay and I am right with God. Many of us through the years of COVID and the chaos that surrounded that, we were brought face to face with our own mortality in ways that we hadn't considered before. How many of us thought that it's our physical safety, it's our comfort? As long as I don't suffer, as long as I don't have a debilitating disease, then, then I know that God can be trusted. I've had conversations with some of you who say, God just feels so far away from me. And it's hard for me to persevere when I just don't have that sense of God's nearness and peace, his presence. Too often we're looking for something other than what Jesus has actually accomplished for us to ground our hope in. Friends, when we do that, when we act that way, when we say those things, when our heart is drawn there, whatever it might be for you, we are adding something to Jesus. And you can't add anything to Jesus. When you try to add something to Jesus, you're actually removing him from the equation altogether. And when we put our hope and trust in those lesser things, and when they fail us, there is nothing underneath to catch us. There is no safety net there. Instead of boasting in Christ, we will be cradling the ruins of what we thought we could trust in, wondering what happened. This book is filled with warnings for the believer because the author knows that our beliefs are not formed in a vacuum. He's going after our hearts. Our hearts must be addressed intentionally, boldly. I read the story this week of a pastor in Michigan who two years ago led a church of about 100 people. It had been about 100 people for about 10 years, um, non-denominational pastor, kind of typical Bible church. Today, his church is 1,500 people every Sunday. That's radical, dramatic growth. It's not a different church. It's not a different pastor. The only thing that is different is what the pastor calls his diatribe. Now, after 40 minutes of singing and before his 40 minutes of preaching, he does a 10-minute rant about the world around him. Other things, some things that he's talked about recently are if the election was stolen, talked about vaccine mandates, he's gone off about masks, about the IRS, about education, and people have flocked to his church. Y'all, it's easy to gather a crowd. If we fix our attention on the problems that we perceive out there. But our ancient preacher is going after the problem in here. 
He's going after our hearts. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says, Guard your heart, it is the wellspring of life. As my heart goes, so my relationship with God goes. And this is the third way that our author is making a comparison with Jesus and Moses. He takes the audience back to the Old Testament, to Psalm 95, to the story of Moses leading the people of God out of bondage to Egypt into the promised land. And he says, just as Moses led the people of God out of bondage toward the promised land, so also Jesus is leading us out of our bondage to sin and Satan to a heavenly rest. We're going to spend more time on that topic next week. But what the author wants us to see right now is that an entire generation of Israelites failed to enter that rest because they suffered sclerosis, hardness of heart. And it wasn't their arteries that clogged up. It was their affection for God. Look again at verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, which is a remarkable statement in and of itself, I wish we had time to look at that and talk about what that means for the inspiration of Scripture. But therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not, listen, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years... Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Again, this is a quotation from Psalm 95, and it's a warning to the congregation that this preacher is preaching to. He says, the wilderness generation died in the desert. And you need to learn that from that hard lesson. What is it that we need to learn? We need to learn that if our hearts grow cold and hard toward God because we're trusting in something else, then we are in danger ourselves of falling away. You and I both know people in our lives that once professed to be Christians and no longer walk with Jesus. Very, very few of those men and women have had real intellectual problems with Scripture or with the doctrines of the church. Almost none of them that are in my life have actually come to tell me, I actually don't believe that a person named Jesus of Nazareth ever even lived. Many of them still in some ways have an orthodox idea of who Jesus is and what he did, but they have turned away because their hearts have been drawn after something else. They've wanted somebody else, something else, someone other than Jesus. And the author says, guys, you're in trouble. If you're going to move Jesus out and put Moses there, it doesn't matter what kind of revere you have for Jesus, how you think about him, your hearts are going to grow cold toward God, hard toward God. And again, that's not our problem. 
Our problem isn't moving Moses into Jesus' spot, but friends, there are too many of us, myself included, that find our own spiritual lives growing more and more lethargic, turning away from Scripture, less and less time spent in prayer, not wanting to be with God's people, doing things in our own private moments that draw us farther and farther away from Jesus. Our author says, be careful. And then he presses in on them. He says, this is how you reverse this. Here's the medicine you take to unclog your arteries. Look at verse 13. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Exhort one another. First and foremost, guys, it requires diligence on our part. It requires an action for us to take. Do you have a relationship with other people in this church in which you can exhort someone? Are you in community with other people in this church where you can receive an exhortation? Oh, well, pastor, you can exhort me anytime. No, no. He's not talking to the pastor of that church. He's talking to all the people in the church. Are we in community with one another where we can exhort one another? Well, what's the exhortation? Look at verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. That's the exhortation. Hold on! Even when you feel like you are being drugged down, hold on. We need to remind one another of the gospel promises, telling one another that we have a high priest, a high priest who offers a perfect sacrifice. A high priest who sanctifies us. A high priest who has brought us into his family. Remember that. Don't turn away from that. Exhort one another. He goes on in verse 13. He says, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. The great Scottish preacher Alistair Begg says that the devil's favorite word is tomorrow. But of course, tomorrow never comes. The author's putting some pressure on us. He says, be intentional about your faith, but also realize that today, our today is a better day than in Psalm 95. We live in a greater era of redemptive history than Israel ever knew. Through the preaching of the word, through the sacraments, through prayer, through the fellowship of the saints, God actually does draw near to us. God, yes, he was in the midst of the camp in the tabernacle, but how many people could draw near to him without being burned? Friends, God draws near to you and me, and we can actually know and experience the power of the age to come here and now. Exhort one another. Realize that your today is a better day than Israel ever knew. And then finally in verse 13, he says, Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
folks, sin comes with its own marketing team. It comes with all kinds of bells and whistles to try to convince you that there is nothing wrong with it. It tries to convince us that what we're doing, what we're thinking, what we're desiring is perfectly normal. It's totally justifiable. John Calvin in his commentary on Hebrews says, Satan by degrees accosts us artfully with indirect means until he holds us ensnared in his delusions. Be aware of the deceitfulness of sin. Our ancient preacher is trying to convince his original audience that if they swapped out Jesus for Moses, as good, as honorable as Moses was, they'll be lost. They'll put their hope on a servant rather than a son, and over time their hope will be shaken, their hearts will be hardened. So to finish up, let's go back to the title of this sermon. What would Moses do? You can almost imagine the author, now that he has compared and contrasted Jesus and Moses, setting this this question before his audience. WWMD, what would Moses do in this situation? He gives us the answer back in verse 5. Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Moses himself looked forward to Jesus, so it doesn't make sense to go back to him. He pointed forward to the Jesus who was to come. Jesus himself started with Moses in Luke 24 to show how all of the scriptures pointed to him. What would Moses do? He would point to Jesus. So listen to Moses and go back to Jesus. He did what Moses was unable to do. He freed us. He saved us, not from bondage in Egypt, but from bondage to sin and Satan. And now you are part of God's house. And the builder of that house that has woven you into its walls and into its structure, he can sustain you there. And he will guard your heart. He will keep you secure in his love. Let's pray. Father, bring people into our lives like Moses who can exhort us, who can point forward to Jesus, who can shake us from our complacency and lethargy, who can work out the clogged arteries of our hearts of faith and love toward Christ. Father, do a work for us that we can't do for ourselves. Open our eyes. May the Holy Spirit penetrate our hearts. Lord, more and more, draw us to the one who is the author and the finisher of our faith. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.